Welcome back to the Social World Podcast. I'm Dave Niven, and as always, it's a pleasure to have your company. Now, today I'm going to do an interview with um, someone uh, about something that I've wanted to do for quite some time, because it's a very important part of our sort of social infrastructure. And we're talking about here, we're talking about hospices and children's hospices. And I'm going to be talking today to Laura Robertson, who's the area fundraiser for the Children's Hospice Southwest. And that's part of the wider national uh, organization of hospices called Together for Short Lives. So, Laura, welcome to the program. Hello, thank you. Okay, look, I mean, I'm sure people all have an idea about what hospices do and so on, but I think it's quite important that we actually contextualize it a little bit. Firstly, just say, could you just say a little bit, how come Laura Robertson ended up being the area fundraiser for Children's Hospital Southwest? Could you just have a quick word about that? Yeah, of course. Um, so really by chance. <laughs> um, so I moved down to um, lovely sunny Devon for university, um, gosh, just over 11 years ago now. Um, so when I graduated and stepping out of uni with a with a theatre and performance degree, um, really my options were open as to what I wanted to do next. Um, so I took um, my first role out of university just on the off chance as a fundraising assistant for a local air ambulance charity. Um, and, <laughs> uh, and I almost fell in love with the idea of fundraising and what that entails. Um, I think lots of skills that I learned through university as a performer, um, I could take with me um, and the opportunity to meet so many different people from so many mm. walks of life. Um, and the job was never boring. <laughs> Every day is um, very different. Um, and it comes with obviously lots and lots of challenges as well, which I enjoy yeah. actually. Um, and But the lovely part is obviously raising money, meeting people and then supporting fantastic, worthy local causes. Yeah. And knowing um, that the money is going to a very decent end. Yes, absolutely. So over the years, I've worked for several different organisations, different charities, um, until almost four years ago now, I joined Children's Hospice Southwest. Mm -hmm. um, and I think at that time, it was really important, like you said, to support um, I don't know. For me, it was a local charity and the fact that it was supporting local children and local families. Um, I, I really loved that idea. Um, well, and tell I could tell really... us a little bit about it then. Tell us a little bit about Children's Hospice Southwest. <clears throat> Yeah, so um, Children's Hospice Southwest, we um, have just reached our 30th year. So this is um, Ooh, a big good. celebration for us. Um, but we have three hospices across the Southwest. Um, one is just, well, our first one was up, up near Barnstable in North Devon. Um, secondly, we have uh, a hospice just outside Bristol. Um, and then thirdly, one in St. Austell down in Cornwall. Mm. Um, and what we do is support just over 500 families across the Southwest, all of which will have a child or children in their family who have a life limiting condition. Um, so that means that they're unlikely to survive through into adulthood um, because of because of the mm. condition that they that's, have. That's a huge number. I mean, and yeah. I, I bet you I'll bet you we'll get to this later, but I bet you there are far more that you could help, but you just haven't got the capacity. 
Oh, gosh. Yeah, absolutely. All that they don't know that they can ask us for help. It's normally the challenge. Well, we'll we'll try and help with that by publicising this as much as possible. But anyway, okay. So you got your 30th anniversary, which is great. Um, So you've talked about over 500 families on three sites. But let's dig a little bit deeper then, because it's not just a case of they come and sort of sleep overnight. And I I know from talking with you that the majority of work that you actually do is is performing respite for families um, rather than, um, if you like, end of life uh, care, specifically, you know, the last very short period. But generally speaking, too, there's such a depth that must go into the care process in terms of working with staff, families, parents, siblings, etc., so do you want to say just a little bit about how you actually work with parents and siblings first? Yeah. So, um, as I've said to you previously, um, I mean, the care that we offer each family is very much tailored to their individual needs, okay. um, and as you said respite is a huge part of what we do um and for many families caring for a a child who has varying needs and um in many cases a severe disability um can be completely draining and exhausting on the parents or the carers or grandparents Mm. um so actually when they come to us it's a break from those care duties and we offer families the opportunity just to be a family for a weekend or for a week Um, and our care teams step in and support that family with the care that their child needs Um, and we always say that actually yes we support that child who's very unwell but really we support the whole family we give mum and dad the opportunity to have a, a full night's sleep or an uninterrupted bath in the evening or chance for mum and dad to pop out to the pub for a for dinner without worrying that their mm. child is not being looked after mm. um so and it, you know that that care that we offer the whole family can just do wonders for their resilience going forward um oh, and imagine. it means they get to just reset um and come home and start again <laughs> but no they've always got us to depend on or to be at the end of the phone as well so and siblings too because i mean i i suspect you'd agree with me um and i i did many years work with families with um, disabled children so in effect I realise the impact that people don't realise that having a dependent child has on the siblings. Um, you know, even if it's just general exhaustion sometimes, or actually just a need for some personal special attention. Mm. And I suspect the family work that the staff do kind of focuses on that. Yeah, absolutely. And we've got, we've actually at each hospice, we have dedicated staff teams who specifically their role is to look after the siblings in the families. Mm. Um, So normally they would come and stay for respite and we'd have staff who could dedicate all their time and attention to the other children in the family. Um, Because it can sometimes be forgotten, I think, not intentionally, but um, for obvious reasons, all of mum and dad's um, attention and time has to be on their sometimes on their brother or sister who's very unwell they go to and from hospital appointments doctor's appointments they might miss out on school trips on having friends over for sleepovers um all those things that we took for for granted growing up that lots of the the other children in in our families sometimes miss out on um 
and even more so obviously over the past 12 months. <laughs> yeah, well, um, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to COVID <laughs> in just a second because I know it's yeah. had a big impact. But I mean, the other side of it too is that I rather suspect that if my memory serves me, that a lot of the siblings actually are in their own right young carers. Mm-hmm. And they have to shoulder the burden of actual of care, whether it's physical, emotional, whatever, because, you know, inevitably they help the, fa- the family if they're old enough, you know, in order in, in doing things to um, improve the quality of life of, the, of their brother or sister. And that's an enormous burden that sometimes, if our memory serves me, it robs children of a huge slice of their childhood. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, at whatever age, but especially as, um, you know, siblings and families are in their teens, was getting slightly older, they definitely become additional carers in the family. Mm. Um, so what, as well as obviously offering, uh, you know, fun activities, time away, um, we also hopefully can be there for somebody to talk to for lots mm. of young people in families who mm. may not feel like they can talk to mum or dad about um, or ask them questions because they don't want to upset mum or dad. Um, especially we've seen amazing ex- examples during that end of life period for some families um, mm. and helping those siblings understand what's happening. Um, I've even had a really heartbreaking story from our siblings team about a sibling who was convinced it was their fault that their brother or sister had died mm. because they'd had a cold quite recently, um, mm. but didn't want to talk about that situation with mum or dad because they were obviously grieving and very upset themselves. But through conversations with our care teams and our siblings teams had um, felt yeah. confident enough to to express how they were feeling. Um, and guilt, yeah, guilt, you don't want any blame, child to go through yeah. that, really. So. Yeah. No, of course not. And, I, and I'm sure it's not uncommon. I mean, no. you know, uh, I mean, everybody picks up guilt sometimes, especially if they're a loving family. You know, you, you begin to wonder what you could have done differently sometimes. Um, well, look, let's tackle the elephant in the room, Mr. COVID-19. Um, mm. And I mean, I know from kind of chatting with you that it's had an impact hugely on the, 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 the way that you and your staff work with families. Do you want to just say a little bit about how it's changed and, and what the impact's been? Yeah, of course. So um, obviously, like everybody else, you know, March last year, everybody's lives were turned upside down. And obviously for all of our families who we care for, they're uh, their young person or their children are incredibly vulnerable so um, the decision was made to, to stop all of our respite care at all three of our hospices for the safety of our families um, but actually quite quickly we had to think about how we could still deliver the service that we offer because mm. it's been a, a, a desperate time for many of the families that we care for who were incredibly isolated um, many of them are, are quite used to actually having to shield from family members or from friends because the young person you know can't pick up a cold or because Mm. actually it would be too harmful for them um so for them some of them this is not a new experience but actually they've depended on us even more um than normal um because they Mm. haven't had the support services that they would have normally that some of those things have 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 broken down um in the local community so we've stepped in um as much as possible so we very much had to change 
how we deliver care and we've had to go out to families homes so that's been a big change for our care teams it's some it's a way that we haven't worked before um but mm. we saw the need to actually we had to to work quickly to make sure that families could still depend on us um and where we haven't visited a home we've been at the end of the phone we've been on on zoom calls like everybody else uh we've been delivering care packages to our families um but mm. there has also been a certain degree of being there for emergency care at our hospices for a limited number of families. So um, where can there is they, real Can they still access? Because I'm, I'm thinking, obviously, the, a, a whole part of the respite is, as you quite rightly outlined a little bit earlier, which is actually giving the family a break. Um, and, and with yeah. the, the COVID restrictions, I imagine that that really has got, um, well, challenged hugely. Yeah, and it's been on a case-by-case basis really um but if we've got um examples where families have really just have got to breaking point um we've stood in and actually we've invited them to the hospice that they normally visit Mm -hmm. obviously all um the policies that happen at the hospice to make sure everybody is kept safe are are completely so the hospice i guess is not as it would normally have been it's normally a very open family uh family home whereas actually we've had to section off areas in the hospice to ensure that um we haven't got families mixing with each other which they would normally uh yeah. do very happily so yeah. um, no huge challenge i imagine that they, they, they had to completely change your way of working by the sound of it mm-hmm. and also change the way that the staff interact i mean by going out to families houses i mean um even even something as basic as traveling time you know, I suspect, yep. you know, that, that's a huge difference. So, yeah, okay. a complete yeah. change. Funding. Funding, Laura. I mean, you know, you are a fundraiser, um, albeit for a fantastic cause. But the pop, I believe that there has been an impact because of COVID as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, and we're not alone in that Um all, all charities across the country will have been been affected by um, by mm. the past twelve months. Um, but for us, we many of our events have been cancelled. All of our thirty charity shops across the southwest have closed for certain periods throughout the past twelve months, mm. which is a huge income, obviously, for us. Um, but there have been lots of um, positives, I think, that have come out of the past twelve months as well, in the way that people have gone above and beyond to do what they can um given the circumstances to raise money to raise awareness um and to support local families um and we've seen some extraordinary examples of that um with some of our virtual events that we've run um over the past 12 months uh, and unbelievably a wonderful example is our, our our Santa run, which is um, quite well known <laughs> at the Children's Hospice um, for happening every Christmas. Uh, and this year we asked families and supporters to um, dress up in their own festive gear and take on their own run in their own community with their with their family. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. amazingly, the event, I think the, the event, we're up to just over £100,000 that oh, really? Really? the event raised, which in, incredibly is more... <laughs> than our our in-person <laughs> events so it just goes to show that I, I know everybody is struggling at the moment but 
Instagram, hmm. people are still amazingly doing everything they can to a little to bit of a silver so. lining. I, I get that, but it still hasn't sort of changed the fact that the impact on on fundraising, which is essential, it's crucial. Do how do, I mean? Do you get much statutory support, or you you tend totally dominant, um, uh, totally kind of dependent on um, on on individual fundraising? Uh, majority we are we on average we we get about 17 percent of our funding um from the nhs um mm. but uh that will vary year on year and it's we're never kind of re reliant on it um mm. so yeah the majority everything else um that funds our hospices so that at the moment the figure's mm. just over 11 million pounds a year to fund the service um yeah mm. it does come from voluntary support incredibly <laughs> It's it always struck me, I've got to be honest about this, it's always struck me as something that's kind of, it's not an anomaly as much as, but it's like, it's something sort of abstract slightly. It's a bit like some of the most essential, essential, caring, compassionate services in the community. Um, for example, there's yourselves, obviously, in the hospice situation, but there's also people mm -hmm. like um, Lifeboats and Mountain Rescue that are totally dependent on voluntary funding. Or in, in your yeah. case, you have a little bit from statutory, but, you know, it's always struck me as something anomalous, you know, it, it's a, with 500 children, and these are only the ones that are actually referred to at the moment, experiencing in some cases many years of, of support needed in terms of uh, as they battle the terminal illness and, and the families come to terms with it. I mean, it's, it's an incredible investment needed in, in caring for our most vulnerable yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we're talking about the fact that we're celebrating 30 years, but before the the, the children's hospice in the Southwest existed, there was not a service like this that existed. Mm. So lots of families were struggling in their own homes um, without the support that hopefully we offer as many families as possible. So, um, yeah, it's a huge feat um, to raise what we need to, to raise every year, but it's hopefully... Mm -hmm. Uh, money raised but well spent <laughs> yeah look say, say a little bit about um how people might be able to get a hold of you look at what you're doing donate some money you know give, give us a few kind of um addresses areas uh, whatever how to do all these things i'll put it all of course on the front of the podcast yeah of course so i mean the best place to to head to is our website so that's um chsw.org.uk um, and you'll find everything you need to know there either about how we support local families or how you yourself can get involved um, and as I've mentioned as part of our 30th anniversary this year we've got um, lots of things happening hopefully to generate funds but also just to continue the care that we we offer for another 30 years and beyond so mm. um, yeah just get in touch if there's anything that you want to do to get involved um, and support us right okay well look laura it's been a real pleasure talking with you and please give my best and i'm sure all of our listeners best wishes to you and your staff effectively who are doing a fantastic job in the very very difficult times i mean it's not just you know it's not just necessarily the same as a straightforward lockdown for you it's having to totally adjust and, and recalibrate if you like how you offer this sort of incredible care so all the stuff will be on the front of the podcast. And if it's all right with you, we'll perhaps revisit, um, you know, maybe six, eight months in time and just see how you manage to kind of um, realign things a little bit and, um, 
have actually maintained the service. But for now, thank you very, very much indeed for coming on the programme. Thank you, David. Lovely to talk to you.